You know, my wife and I, when we're uh, out driving, usually like on a road trip or whatever, uh, she loves to see old church buildings. I mean, she's just like, she's always sort of a, you know, she admires them all. And it's uh, it's like we have op- radically opposite reactions. I look at old church buildings usually, and I think, because usually if they're an old church building, uh, it it's probably in its latter stages of life. And often they're, you know, like if you're out on the country road or wherever, you you see a building that the old style structure looks pretty, but I immediately think of what's inside, and and what at one point had been probably a thriving, healthy congregation had constructed a building within which they could worship. And then eventually the process of decay and decline comes, and now it's just a pretty old building. Because the church isn't ultimately a building. It's a gathering of people. Uh, and if it's a, if it's a biblical church, it's a gathering of people who are worshiping the true and living God through Jesus Christ according to the scriptures. And, and so, uh, uh, aesthetically attractive, spiritually sort of discouraging to see really at place at times, uh, places where there was healthy, thriving work of God. And now there's not. And the reality of it is that spiritual health and vitality are never a steady state kind of experience. It is, it is not true. Uh, when we talk about uh, the, the, the congregational or corporate or group element of things, uh, that, that there's a guaranteed straight line from start to finish, but that, that in reality there are patterns of declension, spiritual decline that are real, and the need for uh, renewal that's necessary. And we see that, uh, we see that in the scriptures, we see that in church history. Uh, there's ample evidence of that. Things that began well don't always finish well. And sometimes are finished well before they're done. Because they've left, to use the words of Jesus in Revelation chapter 2, their first love. And so there may be a semblance of the original around, but not the real thing. When we talk about revival or talk about renewal, it's actually a little more complicated biblically than sometimes we give it credit because it's actually not, uh, it's really more of a, a word that we've constructed and built a whole system of definitions around. Uh, when you look at the scriptures, it can be used actually in a very physical way, uh, which we would, right? Someone was near death and then they revived. And actually there's a number of places in the Psalms that are used just like that, that sometimes get snagged out of the Psalms and treated like it was spiritual revival. I mean, literally David was saying, I almost died and you revived me. 
He's not going, I was a reprobate and you restored my spiritual zeal, right? So, so there's that kind of attention. And then also a number of the Old Testament passages, you have to be careful because some of the things associated them are uniquely tied to the nation of Israel. But that doesn't mean there's no profit to us because the scriptures are clear that everything that has been written is inspired by God and is profitable. So we're going to do a little bit of a two-step this morning. I want to give you an illustration of a text that can be, uh, I think has application but can be misused. And then we're going to go from that to a passage in which I think we see that illustrated. All right. So look at Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians, Second Chronicles. 7 and verse 14, because this is a text sometimes you'll hear quoted uh, and, and ought to. It's a great verse, but then misapplied. All right, so look at 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. And my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. So if my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. So one of the things you have happened in the Old Testament is that spiritual decline had national consequences, and that's what this passage is about. It's at the dedication of the temple and God identifying himself with the temple as a house of prayer for people to turn their attention and seek him. And and in the passage prior to this is talking about if Israel rebels and turns away from the Lord, that God will send consequences to them and they will face judgment because of their disobedience. But if my people, which are called by my name, and then there's appropriate means for their restoration. Those means are described in the text as humbling themselves and praying and seeking his face and turning from their wicked ways. All right. So, so God says, if you will humble, pray, seek and turn, then look what the promises are. He says, I will hear. I will forgive and I will heal their land. All right, now, how many of you have ever heard this verse used of the United States? Okay, a lot of hands, right? So here, our, our nation is in decline. We're turning away from the Lord. But here's what God's word says. If my people will, boom, 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 then here's what will happen. Hear, forgive, and heal my land. And it's applied to the United States. So here's what I could tell you. This is pretty simple. This doesn't have to do with the United States. Right? The only way it would would be is actually if the United States of America fit the first description in the verse. If my people. Right? That narrows this to the people of God. And in this particular context, it would be Israel under the Mosaic Covenant. There was a reason that when they turned away from God, these consequences came upon them because the Mosaic Covenant had warned them about these things, 
right? If, if you rebel against me, I'll close the heavens so that you won't receive the rain and have the crops. You will fall under the tyranny of enemies. You'll be taken away captive, right? God had told Israel what would happen if they disobeyed him. And so now he's saying, but if my people, a.k.a. Israel, under the Mosaic Covenant, humbles themselves, prays, seeks my face, and turns from their ways, then here's what I will do. I will hear, forgive, and I will heal the land. Right? It's, it's not a promise for any other nation other than Israel. Okay, it's a promise that's given specifically to God's people in the Old Testament identified as Israel. So, so here's what we have to do. When we look at a text like this, we'd have to say, so where do we stand in relationship to that? Let's just talk generally, right? We're gathered here as a congregation of people uh, who have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and identified ourselves with him as his people. So when you say the my people part of it, then there is a corresponding analogy. We are God's people, right? So God promises to hear and forgive when we acknowledge our rebellion and turning from him. The difference then would come to that land portion. Right, that we actually, and I'm just going to pause for it. So is this not, there's anybody up there? It's not working. Okay, so I, I've heard myself drift away from the mic and start to lose it. So we're right there, all right. Thank you. Pardon our technical interruption there. So the land portion does not apply, but what would be, and I think we should think this way, promises made to New Testament believers Right, So it wouldn't be land. It would be, though, that God has promised to his people in the New Testament, the body of Christ, the believers, certain things. And consequences if we don't heed and listen. Right? Remember Revelation chapter 2? If the church at Ephesus did not repent, he would remove their candlestick. So if they repented and returned, then the promises of Christ for them would be fulfilled. So there is, there is a connection point that we would think about when we talk about the larger concept of spiritual decline and renewal. That at the center of that would be recognizing, I think, these statements that are the appropriate means. Humbling ourselves, praying, seeking God's face, and turning from our wicked ways. That those are the conditions that God sets forth before his people for him to hear and forgive and fulfill his promises to them. And so it's not... Like we just toss away the concept of revival because we, we don't have an exact parallel to the Mosaic promises. We actually have promises from God, which sin might keep us from realizing the fullness of those, right? If we choose to defy God, then, then we are, uh, at the very least, uh, arrogantly presumptive that the promises he's given to us are going to be carried out as his people, 
right? Because if we regard iniquity in our heart, the scriptures say, he will not hear us. So there's something to be learned from these patterns of renewal that happen. And in this particular book, I don't have time to go to it. I think you could, you could find in a series of revivals in the book of Second Chronicles a connection point to these key terms about, about seeking God's face, humbling themselves, praying, turning from their wickedness. Because as you read the rest of the book, that's what's going to happen with a number of these kings. And there's one I want us to look at as an illustration for us of how important it is for us not to presume upon the work of God among us. So now go forward in the book to chapter 15, please. Let me just set sort of the backdrop for you historically. So if you're familiar with the history of Israel, uh, they come out of Egypt, they go through a long period of of, uh, conquest under Joshua, then really sort of a, uh, a period of um, chaos under the judges where they go through cycles of uh, rebellion against God, which leads to discipline from his hand and distress and then some form of repentance and then God delivers them. And they, they seem to go through that again and again and again. And if you're trying to understand sort of a, a basic idea for the book of Judges, it starts to show up when this line is repeated that says, in that, in those days there was no king in the land and everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. It's repeated a number of times because in one sense, the book of Judges is showing the need for a king. Because coming out of the book of Judges is going to come into an explanation of how God provides king and leadership mediator mediator for his people. So Judges is chaos. God establishes the nation under Saul. Saul rebels against God. So he at first loses the promise of a dynasty because he actually betrays the command of God. So he says, your kingdom won't be passed on. And then he continues in his downward trend. And so the kingdom itself is going to be taken from him because God is seeking for a man after his own heart. And that's David. David becomes the king, reigns uh, essentially Judah and Israel for 40 years. His son Solomon becomes the king. And Solomon rules uh, really in, in might and majesty. He builds the temple, which we just saw, the prayer of dedication for it. But then he begins to have his heart stolen away from loyalty to the Lord uh, by the foreign wives that he married. He ends up mixing in the worship of the true and living God with the gods of these wives that probably in many ways were political alliances, right? He married the daughter of Pharaoh. I mean, so he's, he's, he's setting up all kinds of political alliances, but it has a spiritually disastrous effect. His son Rehoboam becomes the king and, and the nation splits. All right, Jeroboam takes the northern tribes, Rehoboam keeps the southern tribes. He reigns for 17 years. His son Abijah reigns for three years. Now we come to the king we're going to look at. So 20 years after the kingdom has been divided, Asa becomes the king. And, and he therefore inherits 
a political world in which Judah and Benjamin, over which he rules, is threatened by the nations around them, as well as threatened by the northern kingdom. Because there was war all, all the time between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And, and so Asa is surrounded by threats. And he's taken over a kingdom that at best is mixed in its allegiance to God. Because Rehoboam had not uh, turned his back on the foolishness of Solomon. And it doesn't seem like Abijah did either. Right? Although Abijah was not, not as bad as many kings who would come, but, but you're in sort of this mess. So now you're in chapter 15. Let me start in verse one to sort of set the spiritual backdrop here. Now the spirit of God came on Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, listen to me, Asa and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For many days, Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But in their distress, they turned to the Lord God of Israel and they sought him and he let them find him. In those times, there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in. For many disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands. Nation was crushed by nation, city by city, for God troubled them with every kind of distress. But you be strong and do not lose courage, for there is a reward for your work. So here, here is in the middle of two chapters that uh, both address what I'm going to call this morning uh, Asa's triumph in 14 and the tragedy in 16. And, and what I want us to see, though, is the spiritual uh, realities that were going on. Probably verses three through six refer to the period of the judges. That's what most take it, that the prophet is showing up to talk to Asa about his day, but he's reminding him about what it was like in that period of chaos. We're back on. All right. So, so he's reminding him about that period of chaos in which, uh, there was this constant turmoil, right? They would face distress. Then they would cry out to the Lord. The Lord would hear him. And it was just constantly going like that. And, and so he wants Asa to remember the problems that come when people abandon the Lord. You forsake the Lord and he forsakes you. But if you seek him, you'll find him. Okay, don't, don't lead the people back into that period of chaos. That's basically his message to them. Because that pattern was played out again and again. There was decline, then distress, repentance, and rescue. So the point he makes is in verse two, right? The Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, he will let you find him. And if you forsake him, he will forsake you. All right, so let me just step back for a moment because we don't do a good job of thinking like this. And I say we like as in our culture, right? We live in a radically individualistic culture. So we tend to think always in terms of, of just the individual, me and God. Okay, that's just, that's just tends the way we operate. So the idea of how God would relate to his people, even when I say that, you might be thinking people as individuals. 
right? How does God relate to his people? And you think, well, like there's Joe and John and Tim and Frank. Rather than Israel, rather than the church, right? What this is talking about is the congregation of God's people. If you're with the Lord, the Lord's with you. If you seek him, you'll find him. If you forsake him, he will forsake you. Okay, and it's important to understand that as to regard to the, the, the nature of what's going on here. Okay, because here's some of you might immediately hear that if you forsake him, he'll forsake you. But hey, wait a minute, time out. Doesn't Hebrews say he will never leave you nor forsake you? And here's the thing. Hebrews is exactly true for the individual believer. Right? But when you come to the assembly of God's people, right, that's why you can have Jesus say, repent, or I'm going to remove your candlestick. Right? Because it's, it's a different reality when you're talking about the church and how it's orientation is to God. Is it seeking the Lord or is it just forsaken him and wandered off? Right? But you and I have a hard, we have a hard time thinking of the group of God's people because we've so individualized and personalized everything that we could treat it as if everything is just about me. But think just I don't want to go into this deeply, but think of the illustrations, right? So Israel comes out of Egypt. They're supposed to conquer Jericho, all devoted to destruction. Achan takes stuff he shouldn't have. And you, he, did he suffer the consequences for it? Absolutely. But you know who suffered consequences for it first? Israel. They go into their next battle and they lose. Because something that was devoted to God had been kept. There was sin in the camp. And sin in the camp caused consequences for the camp. Now, you and I tend not to think that way. We tend to think Achan's just his own deal, man. He's doing his own thing. That's Achan. That's not me. Because we don't do ownership in the community well. We don't think properly about our corporate congregational connection and therefore responsibility before God and obligations and consequences of it. Now, this text is talking about that, right? That's why he went immediately, right? Two says, Lord's with you when you're with him. If you seek him, you'll find him. If you forsake him, he'll forsake you. And then what's the illustration he gives in verses three and following? It's the nation, right? They, they turned away from the Lord and they were handed over to distress. But if they cried out to the Lord, he heard them, right? It was, it was about what was going on for God's people. Cause remember back in 714, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray and seek my face. And what's this text talking about? If you seek the Lord, you'll find him. And all through this passage, it's emphasizing that element of seek. Just let me show it to you really quick. Drop down to verse 12 of chapter 15. 
They entered into the covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and soul. In fact, because it's the nation of Israel and whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death with a smaller, greater man or woman, right? So, so this religious crime was a capital offense within the theocracy. Okay. So, so, so it was that kind of commitment. Look at verse 15. All Judah rejoiced concerning the oath for they had sworn with their whole heart and had sought him earnestly. Okay, so it's about seeking the Lord as the assembly of his people. And the promise is that if his people do that, he will be found of them, right? God's not going to hide himself. So now let's look back into chapter 14 and see Asa actually uh, living this out in a positive way, a record of triumph. Uh, there's exclusive devotion to the Lord. Start in verse two of chapter 14. This is near the beginning of his reign. Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God, for he removed the foreign altars and high places, tore down the sacred pillars, cut down the asherim, and commanded Judah to seek the Lord, God of their fathers, and to observe the law and commandment, all right? And and down in verse seven, it says, the land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him and he has given us rest on every side. So there was an exclusive devotion to God, which was marking out their seeking, right? And, And this is, I don't think I have to unpack this much, right? You can't, you're not really seeking the Lord if you're worshiping false gods, right? It's not, you know, you've got, Baal and Asherah and God. And so you're being religious and you're covering all your bases with whatever, you know, God you want to be. You're only seeking the true and living God if you are seeking no other gods, right? So he removed all of those false gods, the foreign altars, high places. He tore them down. He turned away from it. But also, it's an issue of absolute dependence on the Lord. So look, look at verse 11. Actually, I'll tell you, to get the, the backdrop of it, start in verse 9. Now, Zerah, the Ethiopian, came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots, and he came to Marishah. So Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up in battle formation in the valley of Zavath at Marishah. Just so you can have an idea, verse 8 says Ace had an army of 300,000. So, so basically they're outnumbered 10 to 3. And there's no mention of chariots. So they actually may have been chariotless against an army of 300 chariots. So look at what Ace's response is in verse 11. Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one beside you to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. So help us, O Lord, our God, for we trust in you and in your name have come out against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. So the Lord routed the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah and the Ethiopians fled. So here's, here's a battle which humanly looks unwinnable. All right, a million to 300,000. 
with superior weaponry. Right, this fight is not one that humanly Judah could win, but they turn to God in absolute dependence. They sought the Lord. Right? And God had promised that if you seek him, you will find him. Look at verse 11, because I, I, I sort of love the balancing tensions that are in this verse about this turning to God. There is humility regarding themselves. Asa describes them as having no strength. So on one hand, you have Asa confessing, we have no strength, but also confidence in God. There is no one besides you. Right? If we have too high a view of our own abilities, then it automatically produces too low a view of God's. Right? If, if we think we're sufficient for the fight, then we are actually not inclined to look at God as the only source of strength and help. Right? We get blinded to that. If our focus is on God's power properly, it will be because we actually see that we lack it for this fight and battle. Right? And, and here's the thing that, that is true of us. You and I uh, are engaged in a spiritual warfare for which we have no inherent capability to win. Right? What does Paul say in Ephesians 6? We wrestle not against flesh and blood. You and I do not have the strength, power, wisdom to win a fight against the devil and his forces. So, so we have to have humility about ourselves, yet absolute confidence in God because there's no one besides him that has that and, and that he can, in fact, win that fight. He can deliver his people in that way. And, and that's why it's expressed in dependence upon God, joined, if I could put it this way, with active commitment by them. Notice the language of the text here, right? He's got dependence upon God. So help us, O Lord our God, for we trust in you. But notice the next line. And in your name have come out against this multitude. So, so here's, here's, I think, a, a living example of a verse in Proverbs that I, I'm often reminded of, right? The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. So look what he says here. He says, we help us. We trust in you. And in your name, we have come out to the fight. Right? So they didn't sit back in their palace and go, hey, there's a million people out there. Do something, God. It was, okay, we've got to line up our 300,000, get all of our equipment out there, but we're not sufficient for this. We're going to step out to the fight that is your fight. In your name, we've come out. They're coming up against you. So we're going to step out to the fight as we're supposed to, but, but help, help. We trust in you. 
right? If our dependence on God, and I'll, I'll put that in the air quotes, if our dependence on God actually takes the form of passivity, that we do nothing, then it actually isn't dependence on God. Right? If, 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 if what we do is end up sitting back and not obeying God to step up to the fight that we have to fight, and we, we somehow think like the, like being spiritual means we actually do nothing, then we don't understand the constant pattern in scripture is that faith always steps out in obedience. Right? When, when David went to fight Goliath, he was doing so by faith. And that faith looked like gathering up stones and marching out to the battle and firing those stones. Right? And David's doing so saying that the Lord is going to deliver you into my hands so that people know that there's a God in heaven. So it wasn't David the people who were back up on the other side of the valley, they weren't exhibiting faith. It was the person who went down into the valley for the fight and said, the battle is the Lord's, and I'm going to trust him. Right? That's, that's what's going on. There's no, there's no conflict inherently between crying out to God for deliverance and taking the step by which God might deliver you. Right. It's, I mean, if we put it in the technical terms, right, is God has given means by which we are to serve him. We trust in God, though, not the means. God is said to pray. We don't actually trust in prayer. We trust in the promise that God answers prayer. Right. But, but if you go back, oh, yeah, prayer doesn't work. It's God who works. So you never pray then you actually don't trust God. I mean, you get that, right? Well, it's not prayer, it's God. So you act as if you're not supposed to pray. When God says, well, hey, I answer prayer, so pray. If you really trust God, you'll do what he said to do. Not ignore what he said to do. And that's what Asa was doing. Asa was looking at this overwhelming obstacle, this genuinely fearful circumstance, and he saw God to be trustworthy, so he took the step that represented trusting God. You're going to help us defeat this enemy. We're going to show up, but we know the battle is yours. All right? And, and there was a kind of desperation Regarding his personal danger. Notice, so help us, O Lord our God. I mean, they knew if God didn't help, they were toast. But notice it's also set in terms of zeal for God. Notice the end of the verse. You are God. Let not man prevail against you. And this is, again, a little bit tricky for us at times to think about, but it shows up again and again in the scriptures, right? When Moses prays to intercede for the people of Israel when God's judgment was going to come on them because of their rebellion, Moses says, what will the nations think? 
What will the nations, they're going to think that we just came out of Egypt just so we could fall in the, in the wilderness? God, your name is attached to this, right? Your glory is fixed on these people. So I'm asking you for the sake of your name, forgive them and protect them. And that's what Asa is saying right here. He's going, Lord, we need help. Don't let humans prevail against you because we're your people. And if we get defeated by these armies, it's your defeat. Because you said, if we seek, we'll find you. If we'll be with you, you'll be with us. So we're taking you at your word. We're coming to you, asking you to do the thing that you said you would do. And look at verse 12. Look what God does. The Lord routed the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. I mean, they won. That's why I said verse four, uh, chapter 14 is triumph. All right, Asa understood what God had said about seeking him, and he and the people sought the Lord, and, and the Lord was found. I right, jump to chapter 16, and look at the tragedy here. I'm going to read beginning in verse 1. In the 36th year of Asa's reign, okay, the king of Israel came up against Judah and fortified Ramah in order to prevent anyone from going out or coming in to Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa brought out silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the king's house and sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, who lived in Damascus, saying, let there be a treaty between you and me as between my father and your father. Behold, I have sent you silver and gold. Go, break your treaty with, uh, with Basha, the king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. Then Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel. And they conquered Ijon, Dan, Abamayim, and all the store cities of Naphtali. When Baasha heard of it, he ceased fortifying Ramah and stopped his work. Then King Asa brought all Judah and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber with which Baasha had been building. And with them, he fortified uh, Geba and Mizpah. Let me just stop right there because what this seems like is that Asa was shrewd and accomplished his objectives and effected deliverance, right? That's what it seems like. But notice what happens starting verse 7. At that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Aram and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubim an immense army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will surely have wars. Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in prison for he was enraged at him for this. And Asa oppressed some of the people at the same time. So here's, here's the full picture of it, right? There was... 
there was sort of like an immediate resolution of the immediate conflict, right? The northern tribes were coming against the southern tribes, and Asa sets up a treaty with the king of Syria, Aram, to come in and disrupt the attack. But he made a treaty with someone who's actually his enemy, and eventually he's going to end up fighting that enemy too. That's what the prophet says. You, you, you could have had victory. You could have had real victory and you squandered it because you didn't rely on the Lord. Instead of seeking the Lord, you sought your own remedy. You sought your own pathway. You tried to affect your own deliverance. And that was because in verse eight, clearly he forgot the victory that God had given him. Now, I don't know if you noticed the dates there. He, so, it's, it's hard, uh, possibly, probably the way to think about it would be, all right, Asa became the king. It talks about him having 10 years of peace. So he's 10 years into his reign, and then the battle with the Ethiopians comes. Verse 1 says this is the 36th year of his reign, right? So like 25 years later, this threat from the northern kingdom is coming. So 25 years after God did this incredible victory, it seems like Asa has just forgotten about it. That's why the prophet says, weren't the Ethiopians a far greater number than this threat? Didn't God do something far bigger than this one? But you've turned away from him. Instead of seeking the Lord and relying on the Lord like you did back there, you're now relying on a false hope in the king of Syria. They had forgotten it. And, and, and so I think this is good for us to remember because many times in the Old Testament scriptures, or I mean, I've clearly, uh, I think it's mainly in the Old Testament, we see it, but I think you could probably pick up the pattern in the New Testament if you start to get down toward the end of the New Testament. But what we'd say is that one generation serves God and then another generation forgets God, right? And Judges, the beginning of Judges, it, it talks about after Joshua and that generation died, it says then another generation arose that did not know the Lord. So sometimes we tend to talk that way, right? Oh, the next generation, whatever. But here's a scenario where it's not a generational thing. This is the same guy, right? This is the man who led them to seek the Lord in the midst of an enormous conflict and within the space of two and a half decades, the same man, same leader, same people are trying to figure out their own way through the problem. They've forsaken the Lord. They're not turning to him. They're not relying on him. Right. And I think the thing we have to recognize is that you cannot presume upon faithfulness to the Lord. You cannot presume upon the, the responsibility to be seeking the Lord. Right. Cause seeking the Lord with your whole heart is obviously more than just showing up. Cause you have this statement about Asa that he was actually he was actually a good king for his entire reign. It's not till after this event, right near the end of it, that he starts to do stupid things. Right? But he didn't start building 
false gods up. He didn't start doing all that stuff, right? He, he never turned into the pagan idolater that his grandfather, great grandfather had been and his grandfather had been. He still had maintained the semblance of obedient Israelite worship. But somewhere along the way, his active commitment to and confidence in the Lord as his help. Remember he said in 14, so help us. Right? We trust in you. Somewhere along the way, he lost that confidence. He lost that commitment. Because he faces another enemy, even a smaller one, and he doesn't cry out to God. He sends someone to broker a treaty with the Lord's enemies. Right? He actually turns to a pagan king to give him rescue instead of turning to God. He puts his trust in horses and chariots instead of God. He forgot the victories. That's why the Psalms, I think, say so many times that, that Israel failed because they failed to remember the works of God. They saw God do great things, and then they just sort of went on with life and forgot about it. They weren't regularly recalling them, rejoicing in them, talking with God in praise and prayer about them. I mean, if, if, if we don't regularly reflect on the, the works of God, both in the scripture and in our lives, we'll drift away from this kind of devotion to God that he calls us to. Right? We'll, we'll just play church. We'll think a healthy church is, is basically, uh, attached to all mundane things, nice buildings, activities and events, people present, and not not, uh, tied to the Lord being with us, us seeking the Lord and him being found. Because where I started today about all oh, empty churches and you know facilities that pass as places of worship, a long time before they got emptied out of people, they were emptied of the Lord's presence. Because if the people who are in that building were not seeking the Lord then he was not being found by them. And if they had forsaken him, then he had forsaken, if they had forsaken him, then he had forsaken them. Remember, I'm saying them. Hear the words of Jesus. Unless you repent, I will remove your candlestick. That's not, I'm going to send a tornado to knock your building down. That's not, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise the ground it's on. That's, I will no longer meet with you. You won't be the house of God. 
the temple of the living God through the Spirit. You might have a form of godliness, but you're denying the power of it. Right? Because God said, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. If you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. So if you stop drawing near to the Lord, it's foolishness to expect that he's going to draw near to you. Okay, so the, the path of decline happens when people just assume that's to be true. Right? Read the Old Testament prophets. I mean, they... They, they're still going through the sacrifices. They're going through all the stuff. And God says, is this what I want? They were fasting regularly. And God says, is that the fast that I want? You've just constructed religious rituals. You're trying to manage me. You don't really want me. You're not seeking me. And, and, and if we don't keep that heart, then it will ultimately end up in the devastation of God's people. So they had done here, Asa gets as false alliances as an answer to his solution. And I think that was evidence of a kind of an idolatry that was, uh, on a plane with the idolatries that he had cleared out in chapter 14. Cause if you, if you, if you, if you try and wrap your brain around idolatry, which again is a little bit hard for us because we, we're not, we're, we're not as attached to material items as, as, uh, maybe other cultures have been. But that doesn't mean that we don't also engage in idolatry, right? False thinking is idolatry, right? When you ascribe godlike qualities to non-God entities. So Jesus can talk about it as serving mammon, right? Who supplies for all of your needs? If you understand what the scriptures say, it's God. He feeds he clothes. He provides those things. And you know what? When you ascribe God-like qualities to a dollar bill, you're making it an idol. Because it actually can't supply for you the things that only God can supply. So Jesus can warn about worshiping and serving mammon. You've given it a God-like quality in your thought process is an idolatrous one. What if you have false hopes, right? You look for blessing or deliverance from someone or something that cannot ultimately provide it. I mean, again, and this is a tension. Asa takes the army and lines up against the Ethiopians, but he wasn't trusting in it. Right? But if he had actually put his trust in it, it would be, idolatry. And that's what he does in chapter 16. We've got the northern kingdom coming. I'm going to put my hope in the king of Aram. 
That's what I'm going to rely on. You, you heard the words in the text. When you relied on the Lord, here's what happened. But now you're not relying on the Lord. You're trusting in something else to give you deliverance than God. So it's not, it's not as if we abandon all of our weaponry. We prepare the horse for battle, but the, the, the battle belongs to the Lord. Right? What are we trusting in for that deliverance? Where do we see it? And so many people in our day have put their hopes in things that are not sufficient to bear the weight. It might, might bring temporary deliverance because that's what happened with, with this northern kingdom fight, right? Asa probably had a party. In fact, they went and tore down all the stuff. And they were probably going, look at us, man. Wasn't that shrewd? Everyone's patting Asa on the back. That's a, you cut a great deal, boss. Way to go. But the reality of it is all he did was, was have a temporary victory that was going to lead to larger and more significant defeats because he trusted in himself and in the arm of flesh instead of trusting in the Lord. He took things into his own hands. And obviously, idolatry takes the form of, of seeking for happiness or satisfaction anywhere other than God, which is probably the prevailing idol of our culture. I mean, what, what, what do you build your life around because you think it is the source of your happiness? What's the thing in your life that you think you cannot live without? And if it's anything other than God, you ought to do some wrestling in your soul. And there are lots of things that are very, very important to me. None of which can be more important than God. There's only one absolutely essential thing. And that must be the true and living God. And, and if in your life or in the life of an assembly of God's people, happiness is defined by something other than God, then we're worshiping falsely. We've started a trajectory away from him. Right? Because we found happiness and satisfaction apart from the true fountain of happiness and satisfaction. We cannot do that. So what Asa does for us, I think, is help us see that if we seek the Lord, God will be faithful to his people. If we turn from the Lord, God will be faithful to himself. Right? He, he is not going to be treated like the pagan gods. And, and God's been very gracious to us, right? We have a, we have a long and rich history. I certainly hope it's not just a history. Because it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter that, that if, if what we look at is we look at sort of, boy, we've been healthy, we've been fine, 
we'll be able to navigate everything in the future. Right? It really has to be the blessings of God that came from seeking him should be motivation for seeking him even more. They should never be laurels upon which you rest. They should be motivations for seeking God so that we find him. Of holding fast to him so that he shows himself strong on our behalf. Because look at verse verse 9 of chapter 16. Right, He may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Right. I think this has ramifications personally. Right, but it's but it's written in the context of the congregation of God's people. Right, the battles that face God's people to be faithful to him in this time and in this era are real. And the only way we will meet those battles in the victory of the Lord is if our heart is completely his. If we decide, well, hey, the way to get out through this thing is we need to we need to work out this deal with this pagan philosophy or pagan idea, or we need to forge this compromise with this group which has has taken a stand away from the Lord. We need to find a way to navigate this, and if we just sort of cut this deal and work this angle, we can make it through all of this. Then, then we will have abandoned the Lord because we're not looking to him. The only way for God's people to experience the gracious work of God on their behalf in this way is when their heart is completely his. Completely his. That we have cast our lot, so to speak, on the power and promise of God, and there's no other, there's no other option. And here's what I'd say to you, chapter 14 is triumph. That's where we need to live. Chapter 16 is a tragedy, and that's where we're always tempted to look. Right, we're always tempted to find our own solutions instead of cast ourselves completely and dependently upon God and his promises. Let's remain faithful and recognize his unique glory that there's no God like him. Remember his faithfulness to his word. He has done what he said he would do. Remove every competitor from your life. Put them in the proper place underneath God. Don't let God have any rivals in your life. There can be nothing that rivals the glory and grace of God in our church. He alone must be the center. And we cannot turn away from that. And let's seek the Lord with all our hearts.